Good morning. Prescribed medication. Prescribed medication. I'm sure you guys have all been prescribed medication at some point or another in your life. Now, there's some kind of medication that's only legal in California and Colorado that us believers shouldn't be trying to get a prescription for. Yeah, that's funny. But there are other kinds that are legit. I, I remember um, my wife and I had decided that we were going to take a cruise several years ago. We wanted to take the kids, go to another country, and we found a cruise that was cheap. And so we decided to, to book the cruise. The interesting thing about this is my wife, if you know her at all, she gets horribly, horribly motion sick. Uh, she, uh, uh, anything makes her motion sick. She can't even go on bark. Uh, I remember I was like, you know, we came, you know, I, I married my wife from L.A., brought her to San Francisco. You got to see the world, you know. We're going to go on a date. We're going to go on BART, and we're going to go to the city and have dinner and see a show. Because, you know, people come from all over the world to go on BART. San Francisco, see, the, see the Golden Gate Bridge. So we're going to do this. <laughs> so we get on BART at Del Norte, and it didn't take us all the way to, to MacArthur. And she's like, we got to get off this thing. So we get off of BART at MacArthur, sit there, it's a transfer point. And, and we sit there for like a half an hour while she gains composure. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like she was so nauseous, poor thing. And then we went back in the city and had our little time there. And uh, so we decide we're going to go on a cruise. <laughs> and, uh, but we're, we, we feel like we're, we're ahead of this game, so we're going to go to the doctor and see if they'll give us a prescription that will help us with the, with the motion sickness on the cruise. And if you've been on a cruise before, it's, generally speaking, they're kind of smooth. You know what I mean? They have like these anti-weight things and they keep you smooth and most of them are pretty smooth. So we go to the doctor and they give us a prescription. This is one of these little patches you put under your ear. The doctor says as long as you put the patch under your ear, you'll be fine. So we go on the cruise, she puts a patch on, we're thinking everything is going to be a wonderful, wonderful time, right? Well, I mean, it's by day two and she's already thinking this patch is not working. Uh, by day four, I mean, she's like huddled in the cabin, you know, she cannot get out of the room and she's like, what's this patch for? Well, what's it doing? And I don't have any medication. I'm like, this is beautiful. You know, this is wonderful. And she's just having, I, and so we, we finally get off the boat. She rips off the patch. This stupid thing was, didn't work. I had a great time. And then, uh, like, 12 hours later after she pulled off the patch, she goes into a state of vertigo. So we waited a day. She wakes up the next morning. She's still in vertigo. So we go back to the hospital. We're like, what's going on? So, oh, one of the side effects of this drug is if your body becomes dependent upon this drug, what will happen is when you go off it that quick, uh, uh, you're almost having like uh, urges to have it. And so your body actually works better when you're off the boat than when you're on the boat and everything starts spinning. <laughs> and so she's sitting there going, are you kidding me? So the drug didn't work while I'm on the boat and now I'm off the boat and I'm in vertigo. And so what they had to do is they take the drug, they put it on her, on her, on her, on her, under her ear again, cut it in half two days later, cut it into a fourth, and wean her off this drug. Prescribed medication. Uh, I'm sure many of you have your own stories about prescribed medication. We're, we're starting a series called Symptoms of a Healthy Church. Symptoms of a Healthy Church. And we're going to be asking the question, what does a healthy church look like? And several of us pastors will be up here in the next six weeks talking about what aspect or another of a healthy church looks like. And today we're going to be talking about prescribed medication. What would God prescribe for us to be healthy? It's a New Year's time. Everybody makes a New Year's resolution this time of year. Did you make one? I'll say it. I made one. I did. Did you? Yeah. I'm still on mine six days later. 
And so hopefully you'll be on yours. We're asking our church, what, what does a healthy church look like, and what could our New Year's resolution be as a church? In 2013, how could we be a healthy church? What would a healthy church look like? And so we'll be looking today at prescribed medication. What medication would God prescribe for us as a church? And what is his prescription for a healthy church? Now let me tell you where we're going today. We're going to see three things. All right? We're going to look at our culture, our foundation, and our assignment. Three things. Our culture, our foundation, and our assignment. Our culture. What is the culture in the church? Our foundation. What is foundational for the church? And our assignment. What has God called us to do? How does the culture affect the church? Where do we turn when our culture affects us negatively? And how does God want us to respond? Three things. Our culture, our foundation, and our assignment. First, we're going to go to our culture. And for that, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, if you're visiting us, there's a Bible right in front of you. I encourage you to take it out. If you're afraid to ask the person next to you where 2 Timothy is, it's okay, they don't know either. But you can go on the first page of your Bible, and it'll give you a little index there, and it'll show you what page it's on. 2 Timothy chapter 3. First thing we're going to look at is our culture. Let's start at verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. And really the idea there is like a, a hard-heartedness, heartless. I, the picture is a devoid of any natural affection. It'd be like a boy taking his mother's gun, shooting her, killing her, and then heading off to a school and killing a whole bunch of kindergartners, like we just saw in Connecticut. Hard-heartedness. Unforgiving, or, or literally the idea is irreconcilable. Slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not lovers of good. Literally irresponsive to good. Haters of good. Treacherous, rash, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who warm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will, be, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be made clear to everyone. Our culture. And basically, he says, our culture is completely godless. There's a whole list of terms that it just said unholy, ungrateful, disobedient their parents, boastful, proud, without love. Our culture is godless. But the interesting thing here is he's not talking about necessarily, you would expect that of the outside world. Okay, the church here, we're filled with God. Outside world is godless. But he's talking about the church. This is creeping into the church. So we have a culture that is godless, and it is now creeping into the church. And that's the warning he's giving Timothy. The culture is godless, and it's creeping into the church. He gives examples of it. 
Uh, conceited people loving pleasure rather than God. Having a form of godliness and yet denying its power or being denied its power. You ever met someone like that? They say they know Jesus and, 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 and they look godly and they, they punch in the religious time clock. You know what I mean? Every week they come to church. Maybe they give a little of the offering. And, and they have this form of godliness but yet they can never overcome sin in their life. I mean, it's not like all of us struggle, but these people just can never get victory. They have a veneer of godliness. They have a, a shell of good godliness, but it's not real. It's fake. It's the appearance of something that doesn't correspond with reality. It's fake. It's something that's not really there. Titus puts it this way. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. One of the reasons you might not be able to move forward, you never can get control over that sin, could be, according to this, that you don't know him. And this is scary stuff. You think, he's talking to the church. So there's people in the church who are imposters. They're fakes. They look like it on the outside, like they know God, and on the inside they have no faith with God. It's a godless culture that's creeping into the church. And then he says something to them. He gives them a command. Have nothing to do with them. Verse 5. Have nothing to do with them. Now, I know that's kind of hard for some of us, especially those who have the rescuing personality. Like, we're the church, right? We're supposed to rescue people. We're supposed to help people. At some point, it is appropriate, even commanded for us to cut off a relationship. Did you know that? Have nothing to do with them. Avoid them is the literal idea. Avoid such men. Then he gives two examples. These are the type of men that come into church and they prey on our women. Look back to verse 6. They're the kind who warm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. <laughs> they come to church to pray, but not the type of praying. It, it's to pray on our women. And sometimes we elders and pastors will look for this. We see a guy going, wait, what, what's he doing? He's picking off our ladies? No, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that. You need to leave. It's the idea, like, let's say like, like a, a girl uh, gets involved in some wickedness and she's a, a young adult and, and she gets pregnant. Then she repents and says, I want to live right. I want to do the right thing. Okay, keep the baby. We're going to help you raise this baby. And then the man would try to attack her and try to get her back from the sin that got in that place in the first place. They prayed on weak-willed women. That's the kind of people they are. Then he uses another example. It's like Janice and Jambres. Look at verse 8. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. The Janice and Jambres were the, they, we don't have their names in scriptures, but we believe because of Jewish and Christian tradition that they were the people at the side of Pharaoh that would try to combat Moses. Remember when Moses came and he said, let my people go, and uh, if you don't, I'm going to do all these miracles, and finally you're going to let my people go. And the first one was like, he threw down his stick and it became a snake, right? And then one of the magicians threw down his stick and it became a snake too, right? And then, and then, Mo then uh, Moses' snake ate the other snake. Remember that? And so these magicians were able to, at the beginning, were able to kind of do what Moses could do. But, of course, they weren't able to replicate all the plagues. They, were, they weren't able to, to combat all the rest of the plagues. And he's saying, Timothy, just like it looks like they were winning to begin with, it's only short-lived. Just understand, they may have some short-lived victory, but it's only temporary. And he says, they are corrupted in their mind and disqualified with respect to the faith. They won't get very far because in the case of those men, their folly was made clear to everyone. They are corrupted. It's a man really, really deep. They are corrupted in their mind, and as it relates to the faith, they are disqualified. 
You know what he's saying to me? To me, there's imposters in the church. They're fake. They are imposters. They're, they're magicians. They're in the church. And I want you to be aware of them, and I want you to stay away from them. And it's not something like we haven't seen in other places. Matthew chapter 7, write it down. You can look at it later. Matthew chapter 7, we see that there are people who walk around who are wolves, and they're in sheep's clothing. They put on costumes. They pretend. They fake. And you'll know them by their fruit, right? And then one day they'll go, Lord, Lord, they even know his name. And, and didn't I prophesy in your name? Man, they know religious terms. They do religious things. And didn't I prophesy in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Why? Because they are fake. They are imposters. We're in the midst of a godless culture. It's creeping into the church. And Timothy, a young pastor, is watching these evil people just pick off his ladies, pick off his people. What do I do? Where do I turn? In the midst of this godless culture, where do I turn? Is there any hope for a church with imposters in it? And if there is, where do you turn? We turn to our foundation, the Word of God. We turn to our foundation, the Word of God. Our foundation, the Word. Look at verse 10. You, however, know all about my teachings, my way of life, my, my purpose, faith and patience and love and endurance and persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters, and there's that word again, magicians, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They are so into being de- deceiving other people that they deceive themselves. You ever met someone like that? They, they, they say so many lies, they start believing the lies themselves. But as, but as for you, Timothy, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our foundation is the Word. He says, Timmy, they don't, I know it's crazy out there. I know it's, it's godless and it's creeping into the church, but you've got to remember your foundation is the Word of God. Don't forget your foundation is the Word of God. In fact, even in the face of persecution, your foundation is the Word of God. In fact, it might even look like for a little while like they're winning. I mean, you're godly. You're trying to preach the Bible. You're trying to do things God's way. And yet the evil people are advancing. The imposters are advancing. But remember those magicians. Remember, remember that Moses story. It was only short-lived, and it'll be short-lived for you too. And by the way, I'm not talking to you as somebody who doesn't know from experience. I mean, you know in Antioch the Jews incited persecution. You know in, in, in Iconium the Jews and the Gentiles tried to stone me. You know in Lystra that, that they stoned and dragged me out of the city. I know what I'm talking about, and I'm telling you, join me, remain in the Word. Join me, take the persecution, and remain in the Word. Man, I'm telling you, this stuff, we, we are so puny compared to this stuff. I mean, the worst that will happen to me today, if you don't like this, is you'll leave and go to another church. You're not going to stone me. Nobody's going to kill me. Nobody's going to try to hurt me. And he's saying, join me. Be like me. Suffer for the cause and remain in his word. He gives them two reasons to have confidence in his faith and remain. Uh, the first one is because of the character of the people who, who taught him the word. That would be Paul himself. 
The second one is because you know you've been in the Scripture since you're a young boy. He, t- he gives them two things that happen when you remain in the Word. The first one is that it'll make you wise into salvation. Verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And the second one is, is it makes you, prepares you for every good work. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you remain in the Word, it'll make you wise into salvation and it'll equip you for every good work. And how does it do that? Well, the answer is in verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Your Bible might say inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. The idea is it comes straight from God's mouth. Everything we see in here comes straight from God's mouth. That's what it's saying. This is what we believe. We, we have some theological terms that come out of that. This thing right here is infallible. What that means is, with respect to your faith and the Christian life, there are no faults in this book. All right? But we don't just believe that. We take it a step further. This thing is inerrant, meaning there are no errors in this. And not only in your, in, in, with respect to your faith and, and the Christian walk in life, but with respect to science. With respect to geography, with respect to history, it is completely errorless. It has to be, because if God, if, this, if they're his very words, it has to be errorless. Because if there's an error, then it can't be God who wrote it. So we believe in the infallible, inerrant word of God. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Now, it's a big phrase for this. We believe that God didn't just casually oversee the human writers, because they are fallible, but he made sure they produced a document that wasn't. And they are errant, but he makes sure they produce a document that wasn't. He wasn't just casually watching as they wrote this thing out. No, he was meticulously detailing, making sure everything in this was perfect. So he dotted every I and crossed every T if you can find them in Greek. We believe these are our scriptures. They have authority. We place it up here. Here are the scriptures, and we're down here. And we look to this, and, 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 and we bow to this thing. Now, when I say we bow to this thing, it's not like we bow to this, 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 this binding or the pages or the ink or, or anything like that, we bow to its contents. Now, why do I say that? Because when I was a kid and I was coming to this church, and I, I remember, like, I, it was just a world of difference. I was brought up in a tradition that was way different. Uh, we, we would value the bindings and the paper, and, and, and I remember I'd be at church, and there'd be people, and they'd have these Bibles. They'd zip them up in these things, and they, they'd hold them around like, man, they have their own Bible, and they bring it with them everywhere. And then when somebody preaches, they open it up and they look. I'm like, wow, they actually like read that thing, right? And then it was like time to play. It's time to play volleyball. And they take this thing, zip it up, and they throw it in the air. And I'm telling you, the tradition I was brought up in, I can remember in slow motion seeing the Word of God spin. And it would hit the ground. I cannot believe they just threw the Word of God on the ground. That's what, and then they would, they, would, they would take colors and they would, they would like, Blue is for this, and yellow is for this, and red is for And they would highlight, they would mark up the Word of God. They would write things in the margins. Are you kidding me? I cannot believe you would do that. Because I was brought up in this, we would revere this thing. This, the physical properties of this thing, as if it was some kind of holy thing. But we never looked inside of it, and never like took the truths inside of it, and valued that, and bowed to that. And so... This thing is to us, it's more than just a book you put in your living room right next to a candle under of a crucifix and dust off every day 
It's something you open up and you read and you bow to and you say, this is my authority and I will follow whatever it says. Do you bow to the book? Not the physical bindings, but the findings inside of the book. Paul is telling Timothy, remember the word is a foundation. It's a thing that God used to bring you to salvation. It's a thing that, that he uses to make you ready for every good work. Timothy, don't forget the foundation of the word. And so we understand that the, our foundation is in the word. We also understand that we live in a godless culture that's creeping into the church. And so what should we do? What is our assignment? Look at chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Can I just stop there and say, well, how weighty is that? I'm going to exhort you to do something on the basis of God, Jesus Christ, the one who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, do this. Verse 2. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them great numbers of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth turn aside the myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. Discharge the duties of your ministry. Literally, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Thirdly, our assignment. Our assignment is to preach it. Preach the word. Proclaim it. That's our assignment. Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. In season, and out of season, preach the word. Now, what in the world does that mean? In season and out of season. It's kind of a cool term, but what does it mean? Let me illustrate it to you this way. I don't know how many of you guys are a fan of Nation's Hamburgers, but I believe that Nation's Hamburger gets, Nation's hamburgers gets more customers in the month of February than any other time of the year. I know what you're thinking. Wait, wait, <laughs> there's nothing seasonal about beef. And you're right, and thank you, God, for that, by the way. We can have beef any month of the year. But regardless of the hamburger, something happens after you eat the hamburger at Nation's Burger. You have the opportunity to buy a piece of pie, all right? There are like 13 to 15 different versions of pie there. They're all really good, but the best pie they have there is cheesecake, am I right? Really, really, really good cheesecake. And the cheesecake is so good that you can eat it plain, but they don't really give you that option. They gave you cheesecake and cheesecake with blueberries. That's new, by the way, and it's okay. It's all right. It's not bad. They also have cheesecake with uh, cherries, which I've grown to really love. I really like the cherries. But the best by far cheesecake at Nation's Hamburgers is a thank you, the strawberries on top of the cheesecake. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Now, I don't, if, you, if, you're, if you are a Nation's connoisseur like I am, you would know that they do not offer cheesecake with strawberries on top all year long. They don't. Because they refuse to freeze strawberries and then thaw them out and then chop them up and put it on their cheesecake. They think it makes, uh, makes it uh, inferior. And oh, they are so right. So they wait for strawberries to come in season. 
And so because I love strawberry cheesecake and I love nations, I know, I wouldn't know no other way, but I know that strawberries come in, in season sometime in February. I call nations every February and I say, are the strawberries there yet? And they say, sorry, we haven't got them in, they haven't harvested. Man, the next week, are the strawberries in yet? Man, we really think they're going to be the third or fourth week this year because it just depends when they turn red or something and they haven't harvested yet. Okay, so I call the third week. Are they, you have strawberries? Yes, we have them. I'll be there in five minutes. <laughs> and I go and I buy a whole pie. I eat a little piece, but I buy the whole thing. I just lied in the pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so encouraged this time of year. I had somebody in the first service come back and say, I can't wait till next month. I'm going to call them and see if they have the strawberry cheesecake. And this is like the best thing that happens until like summer. You know what I mean? It's like rainy all this time. But you get excited because there's strawberries on top of the cheesecake. And you know what Paul is saying? Whether people are excited for you to, to, to preach this thing, whether they're excited to hear this thing, you preach it. If they're not excited to hear it, and they're not excited about what's in here, you preach it anyway. In season, you preach it. Out, out of season, you preach it. You preach the word, Timothy, regardless of what your hearers want to hear. Whether they receive it hostily or whether they receive it openly, you preach it. You preach, and then you get ready to preach at all times. Make yourself ready. Literally, the idea is like a military person at their post, always on duty. Be ready. Admonish, correct, reprove, even rebuke. Did you see that there? Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke. That can't be there. I thought the church was supposed to be like, you know, God is love. We're supposed to accept everybody. We're supposed to be loving and we're supposed to care for them. We're not supposed to rebuke them, are we? I don't want you to miss this. What happened in the first section was the word of God was profitable for all these things, rebuking, teaching, correcting. It was profitable for all those things. In this section in chapter 4, he's now saying, okay, it's profitable for those things. Now do it. Somebody has to do it. It's just, you don't just leave it there. It's profitable for that. Somebody comes and does it. And he says, Timothy, it is your job to do it. And it's your job to do it even if it means rebuking somebody. You know, I really hate it when the church gets judgmental. They, they discipline people out of the church. Can you believe how judgmental that is? They asked this guy to step down from ministry. He wasn't even a paid person. He's a volunteer. And they asked him to step down because of some stuff he had going in his life. They asked her to step down from what she was doing because of some stuff she was going. I mean, I understand they were in the wrong, but they didn't handle it right. Those leaders just didn't handle it right. Don't they know that that sounds really harsh? Don't they know that that is really harsh on them? Don't they know that it could be considered a rebuke? It's not the funnest thing to do, I'll tell you that. I hate it. But it's what God calls us to do sometimes. We preach the word in season, out of season, and sometimes that requires correcting. Sometimes it's fun and it's encouraging. And sometimes it's very difficult and it's rebuking. And then he gets four reasons why by the way, Timothy, here are four reasons why you should preach, admonish, reprove, and, and rebuke. Here are the reasons why you should do this. Look at verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them great numbers of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Did you catch the four things? 
Here's why you need to do this, Timothy, because the day is coming when, they will, when people in the church will not put up with sound doctrine. When people in the church will, instead of hearing sound doctrine and sound teaching, will find their own teachers. You ever met someone like that? I don't go to this church because they say this. I'll go to this church over here because they say what I like them to say. There are some topics that I think should just be off, just you can never talk about in the church. All right? And if you talk about it, I'm leaving it, I'm going to my church where they don't do that. They will come up with their own teachers to say whatever their tickling ears or their, they'll scratch the itch that they have. And they will turn away from the hearing of the truth, number three. They will turn away from the hearing of the truth. In fact, they will turn in the truth for a myth. Number four. They take the gospel and say, I'm going to turn this in and I'm going to believe instead in a myth. You know, we recently had a series. It was a very controversial series several months ago. And um, it, was, it was about, uh, it was a series on giving financially to the Lord. And many people got upset. And we got word that people left. And it was hurtful. I, was really, I mean, some of those people that left, I loved. I mean, I, I know them. I, I've loved them. And it was hard that they left. They went to another church. It doesn't talk about money. It was disappointing. But it wasn't disappointing because they left. It was disappointing because they didn't get a chance. They didn't get to hear the series. They didn't get a chance to realize that they could worship God in a new way now. There's another way to worship God. You can worship him by your giving. They didn't get a chance to hear the truth that, that God can do more with your 90%. And there's people all over this building believe this. God can do more than your 90% than you can do with your 100%. He can make it multiply. He's God. He can multiply. He's, he's able to do all these things. And so they didn't get to hear those things. So that's disappointing. But it's not disappointing that we pre preach the truth. You see, it either is in his word or it isn't. It either is scripture or it isn't. It either is something we value or we don't. And this church has made a commitment that we'll preach it. If we take people off, we'll preach it. If they leave, we'll preach it. And we'll keep on preaching what's in here. And we're not going to be scared of what anybody thinks when they hear it. Paul tells Timothy, your job is to take the word as your foundation and proclaim it and preach it. Whether it's received with hostility or received in openness, you preach it. And by doing so, Timothy, you will fulfill your ministry. That's what God's called you to do. Now, I have to take a second here and just say I thank God um, for sending us a wonderful living example of this. As we've had our pastor for 41 years preach the word, not worried about any, what anybody thinks in the audience, and preach it. If it's in it, he preaches it. Thank you, God, for the example of Pastor Philip Howard. I have a goal, if I can just get to where you are, preaching the word and not defaming his name. We live in a godless culture that has even creeped in the church. And the prescribed medication that the Lord gives us is to remain in his word. And so what will you do? What will you do with his word? Will you stand by it? Will you uphold it? Will you follow it? Will you, will you bow to this thing? Like not the physical properties of it, but will you bow to this thing? And whatever it says, I'll do. You know, I told the first service, I don't care if I've learned it in school. I don't care if I learned it in seminary. If you can prove it to me from the scriptures, I'll change. I bow to this thing. 
not a theology, not some person who writes about this thing. This thing. Show me in here, and I'll believe it. And I'll change my life according to this. Because it either is his word or it isn't. It either has authority in your life or it doesn't. And if it doesn't have authority in your life, then whatever does have authority in your life is your God. How about the four things, the four warnings? Do you endure sound doctrine? Do you run to teachers that tickle your ears, say things that you want to hear? Are you finding yourself turning away from the truth? You know the truth, and yet you're turning away from it. Have you found yourself uh, looking to miss, uh, mythical explanations for things rather than God's word? Have you turned in the gospel for a fortune teller? What kind of season is it in your heart? Is the word of God in season in your heart right now, or is it out of season? What kind of season is it at Valley Bible Church? Is the word of God in season at Valley Bible Church? Are we receptive to the word of God, or are we not? And I think we've had a history of being receptive. Thank you, church. How should the church respond to the godless church, a godless culture in the church? Remain in the foundation of the word and preach it. The church's response to the godless culture should be to remain in the foundation of the word and to preach it. It is our prescribed medication from God. When we look to the symptom of a healthy church, the thing that makes it healthy is, are you preaching the word and are the people receiving it? Are they receiving the medication? I had a friend that I ran into um, not even a year ago. I just happened to be in Los Angeles with my wife, my wife and her family are from Los Angeles, and just happened to run into a friend that worked at a church out there for about five years before I came to Valley. He's a good friend. We just happened to pass each other and, you know, give him a ride. And, and he was telling us how he was coming back. We had picked him up from the train station. He was coming back from seeing his brother. And it's kind of a sad story. He said basically his brother was dying of cancer. And, um, and uh, he, he basically he got a phone call the week prior saying he doesn't have much time left. If you want to come say goodbye, you got to come now. And he's just coming back from saying goodbye to his brother who's going to die within a week or so. And, and sure enough, he did. What's sadder is the circumstances behind the cancer. He had developed a cancer that was very treatable and at a very early stage. Doctors are very optimistic that they could cure his cancer and, and that he would go on living a normal life. But he decided that he was going to use a natural way of fighting this. Of course, this was against the recommendations of his wife and his children. And so we lamented as we heard the story and heard, thought, now there is nothing the doctors can do. There's no medication that will help. Will you take the medication while you still can? Will you take God's prescribed medication while you still can? If you're visiting us today, your medication may be nothing more than just putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. There's a God in heaven who said the whole world's going to hell. I can either let them go to hell or do something about it. So I'm going to send my son to come on earth being 100% God, 100% man, doesn't add up to 200%. We don't understand it, but he came and lived a perfect life that we could never live. And so that he is righteous and he is holy. And he said, I'm going to let him die on the cross for sin, even though he had no sin. And whoever believes in my son, I'll take their sin and I'll place it on the cross so that my son takes the penalty for that. And I'll take his righteousness and put it on him. And all you got to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ a God who would send his son to die on the cross and rise again on the third day for sinners like you and me. That could be your medication. If you're a believer in the church today and you call this your home, your medication can merely be just reaffirming this year that you'll bow to this thing. That whatever it says, you'll bow to it. That when you come to church on Sunday and it's so challenging and you leave uncomfortable that you won't begrudge that feeling, you'll embrace it. 
that you leave saying, yes, challenge me more. I want to grow. I want to submit to this thing. Whatever it says, I will do. I will recklessly follow this thing. Your medication might be to bow to this word. And as a church, and what I believe is a healthy church in 2013, will you join me and all the pastoral staff and make us healthy by receiving the preaching of the word? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the history that we have here at Valley Bible Church, faithfully preaching the word. And as we look at what a healthy church looks like, there's no question that your scriptures say a healthy church bows to the word of God. Let us be that this year. Let 2013 be a year where we more than ever bowed to your word, where we glorified you in the preaching of the word, where we glorified you in the receiving of the word, where we continue to transform our lives, that we don't get so... Uh, um, we haven't grown so far in our faith that we can't grow anymore, that we don't get stubborn, that we continue to let you mold us and make us for your word. Amen.